Good evening. It's good to be with you this evening. Thank you for praying for my family this week. The Lord was gracious to us and uh, gave uh, us a little girl five days early. So Jen was very excited about that. She was very glad. And uh, the Lord really uh, protected and provided, and uh, even the reason that we went in on Friday night, we knew it was you know close enough that the baby could come at any time, but there was, Jen had an appointment on Friday, and there were some, some concerns, just enough for the doctor to say, let's bring the baby tonight. So um, there were some of those things, and then even uh, some, some minor concerns along the way that ended up uh, even bringing the baby a little bit faster. So the Lord was very gracious, and everybody's really healthy, and uh, we're very thankful. It was interesting to us. We've said this a number of times, uh, you know, in our in our church especially. Uh, we know a, a lot of people named Karis. Uh, we I think both of us, each of us, went to school with a couple Karises, and obviously we've got uh, Dan and Angie Huffstetler's oldest daughter is Karis. Karis Ann, I learned. Um, so we we know this is it was kind of a common name to us. But there were probably five or six different uh, healthcare providers, nurses, and doctors that we encountered who said, oh, this is the first Karis I've ever had. And that was kind of surprising to us to hear it so many times. And we were glad to be able to say that you know, it's Karis means grace, and God is gracious to us, and he has been gracious to us. And uh, everyone was very kind and uh, very helpful to us, but we have definitely uh, been able to testify to God's grace to us in the last week. If you would turn in your Bibles to First Thessalonians chapter 4. I have made several visits to the hospital or various doctor's offices in the last few weeks. <clears throat> and as you know, one thing that always needs to be done, one thing the nurses always want to do, the doctors always want to do, is measure your vital signs. Right? That's kind of the baseline that you need to establish to understand, for the doctor to understand how the, the basic and necessary functions of the body are working before you're going to diagnose anything else because... Those, however you count them, four to six vital signs are uh, critical to understanding what else is going on in the body. I understand that these would be generally the body temperature, your blood pressure, your pulse, maybe your breathing rate. These all have a a kind of normal range. Of course, they do for little babies. I forget what the normal range for a baby is, maybe 120 to 150, something like that. So their hearts are beating real fast. And it's amazing to hear them. That's actually what you're listening to the whole night. Uh, is that, that heart beating, and that's even a little bit of a reassurance, an incredible thing that God makes their hearts beat like that, that God keeps us alive in that way. But all of these, all of these vital signs have a normal range, and any, any deviation from that, that's a concern. That's an indicator of something that's going wrong, and you know this. You understand it, particularly when you're experiencing, when you're having a hard time breathing or when your blood pressure is doing crazy things. In 1 Thessalonians, I believe Paul points to what we could call a few vital signs of the Christian life. And he returns to them a few times throughout the letter. Functions of a Christian's spiritual life that are essential for healthy spiritual living. And he has seen them in the, in the lives of the people of this church at Thessalonica from very early on after he preached the gospel. And according to this letter, and I think you could make the case from other letters as well. You could say that 
these vital signs that he's dealing with in this letter, the vital signs of the Christian life, are faith and hope and love. Faith in Christ, belief in Jesus Christ, hope about the future, about eternal life, about salvation from sin and eternal damnation, and love for God and love for brothers and sisters in God's family. If you look maybe across the page at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2, <clears throat> he opens his letter mentioning these. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. And he's recalling of what he experienced when he was there and when he was preaching the gospel and when this church was being established. He, seen, he's, he has seen signs of true spiritual life. He's seen their vital signs. If you look ahead to chapter 3, verse 6, he's relating how he was taken from them, kept from them uh, in this persecution that you could read about in Acts chapter 17. And he's so concerned that their life is continuing and that they're actually growing. He sends Timothy, verse 6, chapter 3, verse 6, but now that Timothy has come to us from you, he's returning back, and has brought us good news of your faith and love. He mentions two of them again. And that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. He takes these signs as a really good sign that they have true spiritual life and it's ongoing. And then if you look ahead to verse 13, just after our text for today, he deals with the last one. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. There it is. He wants them to have hope. He knows that they have faith and love, and it's working itself out, and he wants them to have a hope. He's putting his finger on the pulse, you could say, of the church, making sure their vital signs are what they ought to be, and even, you could say, prescribing a way to continue on in healthy, strong Christian living. And for that reason, in our text for this evening, Paul now is turning to the topic of brotherly love. If you look in verse 9, now as to the love of the brethren. Now concerning brotherly love. It's Philadelphia. Like you know, over in Pennsylvania, the city of brotherly love. This is the vital sign of love among the children of God. In this series, as we've considered this letter, I've taken kind of as a, a theme for the series that God preserves those that he calls, those that he is saving. He, he preserves them by sanctifying God preserves those he calls by sanctifying them. He strengthens them. He grows them strong in likeness to Jesus Christ, increasingly purifying them, setting them apart for his use. And the topic that Paul turns to in these verses is brotherly love among God's children. We know that we love, why? Because he first loved us. God made us children he brought us into his family. He loved us with an everlasting love. And then in his family, we love him and we love one another. And I believe the theme of this, these verses, verses 9 through 12 that we'll read in a moment, is that a vital sign of Christian 
love and of Christian life is ongoing brotherly love. We need to see this in our lives if we are to have any confidence that we are healthy Christians. And Paul is writing this in this context of God is strengthening you, God is preserving you, because God will preserve his own by cultivating within them love for their spiritual family. This is ultimately a work of God, something certainly that we have to pursue, as we'll see. Paul says, excel still more, something we need to give attention to. But this is another way that God will help us grow. This is how God establishes us in our faith so that we can withstand the persecution that is certain to come, that was certain to come against these believers in Thessalonica. One of the roots of the tree, you could say. I know I'm maybe mixing a lot of my metaphors here, health with botany. One of the roots of the tree that's going to stabilize that tree is the root of love. So as we read, you'll notice there's kind of two parts to these verses. He commends them on the topic of brotherly love in verses 9 and the beginning of verse 10. And then there's a sentence break in the middle of verse 10. And he begins to exhort them to steady progress in loving others. So let's read starting in verse 9 down through verse 12. Now as to the love of brethren, love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. You see there that he says, we urge you to excel still more. If you were with us as we consider the beginning part of chapter 4, you see back in verse 1, the end of verse 1, talking about a life pleasing to God. He says, we urge you, request you, exhort you that you excel still more. We could call this kind of a continuation of an excellent Christian lifestyle. I've titled the sermon this evening, Abounding in Brotherly Love. That's the idea of that word, excel. Abounding bear much fruit, abounding in brotherly love. And I would just like to say a word about the the seriousness of this this topic for all of us. And if you'll just stick with me just for a few minutes as uh, we consider this topic of love from from another perspective and one that I believe that we're in. Matthew chapter 24 Verses 12 and 13 say, Jesus in the all of the discourse, speaking largely about the end times, to his disciples says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders. Excuse me, uh, verse 12. Uh, many false prophets will arise and will mislead many, verse 11, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. And then Jesus speaks to the gospel being preached. Because lawlessness is increased, what's the effect that the increase of lawlessness at the end of times will have? Most people's love will grow cold. And as you consider Paul's exhortation to abound in love for the brethren, I think this really adds a lot of oomph to what he's saying here for us. 
Is lawlessness increased? Yes, it is. And if you read, if you read these, what Jesus is saying, talking about some of the things, even just there that he mentions in terms of lawlessness that will happen. There's persecution and, and murder that will be going on that's really against actual laws that are really on the books. There's hatred and exclusion based on people who are professing to know Christ. There's rampant apostasy among those who you thought were Christians. There's kind of this mass exodus from the faith that Jesus is describing. Unnatural and cruel betrayals. There's all of these unsettling teachings that are going to be coming around. There's constant deception from every corner because lawlessness increases. And because all of this pressure from the world comes, it is certain to come, Jesus says. And it's all throughout the New Testament. What is, what is in the crosshairs of that? It's the love of God's people. Of course, the devil is delighted when there are people on the broad way of destruction. and he, he, he wants to shepherd them all the way to hell. But if he can't do that, he would love to see God's people withdraw and to, to shrivel up and to protect themselves and not be reaching out and loving. Have you felt that? I really do believe this is very relevant to us, this, this message to excel still more because the tendency when you think, okay, I see this vital sign in my life is to be complacent, right? Okay, I'm growing in this way. Paul's message here to the Thessalonians, and I believe the reason it's urgent for us is sanctification is not, okay, I got this and I've got this little shoot of a plant here and that's good enough. It's, no, you must push on. You must keep going. You must bear much fruit. You must be not just a living plant. You must be a healthy and strong plant. You must go on to maturity. I believe verses like that, that when the kind of situation we even see in our day, when lawlessness really does increase, it is increasing. The tendency, even among God's people, is to grow cold, to withdraw. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. How? If you have love for one another. And, of course, if you read Ephesians 4.15, the pastor even referred to as he prayed, Ephesians 4, the way the church grows is as it builds itself up in love. God equips the church, and he gives gifts to the church, and people are equipped for the work of the ministry, and they're speaking to one another in love, the truth in love. And as each part of the body is working properly, the body is edified as it builds itself up in love. This is essential for your health as a Christian, our health as a church. We must be pursuing abounding in brotherly love. So what is the topic? Thank you for bearing with me. That's a little bit of an extended introduction. But to the topic, Paul gives, you could say, the topic and then the objectives of this class that he's giving. He commends them first about brotherly love with reference to their, their spiritual perseverance that God is accomplishing there. And if, if Paul is bringing them into the classroom and they see at the top, this is Christianity 101. The topic 
is brotherly love, of course, but he makes a review first. Maybe this is a little more common in your high school classes than it is in some of your grad classes. You tend not to get so much review in the, the higher you get in school. But doesn't it always seem to start that way? After summer break, you have to review all of the math things that you learned from last year. Why do your teachers do that? Well, because they know your brain has gone on vacation mode for the last three years. And Paul starts with a review in his class. He says, now concerning the brotherly love, Philadelphia. This is family love. This is love for brothers and sisters, specifically blood relatives. This word is used nearly invariably to refer to love for blood relatives. Relatives, And it's really striking that in the New Testament, this word is used not always to refer to blood relatives, actually most often to refer to fellow Christians, not blood relatives, but blood-bought relatives, brothers and sisters in Christ. That's who these are. That's who we're called to love. Those who have been adopted into the family of God. Concerning the brotherly love, he says, you literally are having no need to write to you. It's an ongoing thing for them. They don't really need this. They don't need exhortation to start loving their brethren. And if you think by way of contrast back to the beginning of the chapter, he he does say, if you look at verse 1, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk, where there he's putting them in mind of something that he's taught them before. Here, they don't, they don't really need a reminder. They don't need an exhortation. They've already given attention to this matter. They're really living it out quite famously. As he mentions in chapter 1, their faith. If you look at chapter 1, verse 7, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in those places, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. They're quite famous about their love for their brethren, their belief in the Lord. And it really is interesting that this would be in the Bible. Why is Paul writing to them about a topic that they don't need written to about? And then, of course, he does urge them to excel still more. I think there is a lesson here that not everyone is learning the same lesson at the same time. Not all churches need stirred up about the same thing. Sometimes we need stirred up about different things at different times. And Paul does seek to stir them up, even as he is commending them and reviewing, you could say. But this does certainly indicate to us, doesn't it, that we can always use being exhorted to do something we ought to be doing. The fact that Paul even addresses it, even though it doesn't really even need addressed. We always need reminders, don't we? Even when we think we're doing well, it seems to be the human condition to, to, what's the phrase, rest on our laurels, to just sit back. You know, I'm pretty good at that. I don't need to give attention to that. And, of course, that's the place that you're weakest right then, right? When you think you've arrived. This is the heart of a humble learner, always to be willing to receive instruction. So he gives them a brief review of this class. And then he mentions the teacher of the class. Isn't that also what's on a syllabus? It's like, you know, I kind of took this class for you. I know who you are. But what does he say? You don't have need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. You yourselves are being God-taught. It's actually one word. 
all those in this particular church were being instructed by God himself about something. And that really is the explanation that Paul is giving, giving for why they don't need an exhortation about love. It's, it's not because they were so great. It's because the teacher is so great, right? We won't take the, the time to trace this word. It is an interesting phrase that he uses here. If you want to, you may have cross-references in your Bible to John 6, 45. There's, there's a reference to an Old Testament prophecy, actually Isaiah 54, 13. And in John, you see the, the effectiveness of when God teaches a person. Uh, it will be said that God will teach all of your sons. It's a word to Israel, a promise to Israel. And that's where Jesus says, no one can come to me except the Father draws him. Jesus, God is effective when he's teaching someone. When God teaches, we learn. But if you trace it back to Isaiah, you see the, the blessing of this to Israel. It's a promise to them. I believe part of a, one of the new covenant promises made to Israel. And it's a promise that all of Israel's sons will be trained in the knowledge of God. And that's one of the blessings of being in close fellowship with God. But these people here, Paul is saying, they had been in divinely instructed to love the brethren. And it was an effective education. Maybe you've read stories, or maybe you yourself have done this. Or you, you read in the news sometimes these immigrant families from other countries, perhaps, that really want an American education. Or I want to learn from that maestro, that professor, this school. And they will give everything to send their children. They will impoverish themselves to get the best education. This is the best education, to be God-taught. And it really is the heart of God's people to learn from God, isn't it? To be led by him for God, to train them in his way, to, to want to learn about God himself. David certainly prays this way. Psalm 25, verse 4 says, Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Psalm 86, verse 11, Teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Psalm 119, 12, Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. It's this posture of a desire to learn from God. And even as David is praying and asking God to teach him statutes, isn't this actually a command that Jesus gave? This command I give to you, that you would love one another. Is it your prayer that God would teach you? Do you desire to learn to love your brothers and sisters in Christ? This is something that we can pray for. This is a lesson that God loves to teach. And this is a, a lesson that we need to learn and we need to improve in. Are you learning this lesson? God is a good teacher, isn't he? But what is the substance of what God is teaching them he finishes the thought, you, you yourselves are God taught to love one another. Actually, literally, it is to love toward one another. And even as that's maybe a little bit of a strange way for us to hear it, it does give you the idea of how active this word is. Love isn't just a feeling. It's love shown toward someone. It's love demonstrated, love acted out. And if you know anything about the, the words for love, the topic that Paul introduced it with is Philadelphia. We heard this morning about uh, Theophilus, God lover. This is Philadelphia, love of brethren. 
This word here in verse 10, verse 9, the end of verse 9, you are taught by God to love one another. It actually is a different word, agape. I don't believe Paul's making a strong distinction here between these words, philos and agape. But that word agape is rich in its use and its meaning in the New Testament. This is certainly, it certainly includes active, self-sacrificial love. That's the lesson that God is teaching them. It's love for others as God has loved them, as Jesus said. I command you, as I have loved you, you ought also to love one another. If you trace this word out, John 15, as Jesus loved the disciples, greater love has no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. You get the the idea of the sacrifice of that, the self-giving. Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, the a kind of love that's devoted to one another, preferring one another. Romans chapter 13, love, don't owe anything to anyone except to love them. Because when you love, that's the fulfilling of the whole law, he says. Galatians 5, Paul refers to love being service-oriented and denying of self rather than insisting on your own rights. And in Ephesians 4, it's connected to the idea of of humble and gentle and patient tolerance with one another. Love puts itself in the low place. It honors others. It gives itself out for others. We won't take the time to develop it the whole way. Of course, we could turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and see how filled with action that chapter is. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's not passive. It's not a feeling. It's active. It's expressed in care, in comfort, and exhortation, and discipleship, and deference, and all of these other things. So how are you acting in love towards your brothers and sisters at church? Maybe it would help us to think in terms of how do we act in love toward others at home? Sometimes the place where it may be the hardest to love. Isn't it easy, particularly when you think of brothers and sisters, right? Isn't it easy just to be indifferent toward your brothers and sisters at home? Maybe when you were a kid, probably a lot more selfish, right? A lot less self-aware, as though, you know, maybe the absence of conflict at home is about equal to love. You know, I didn't fight with my brother today. Of course I love him. But when you really love, if you think about it at home and kind of translate this into the family of God, when you really love others, aren't you having to deny yourself? You're having to share. You're having to serve others. You're preferring others. You're taking initiative. You're doing good toward your brother and sister. It's not just passive. Among God's people, are you actively serving others? Are you actively preferring others? Others? Are you actively denying yourself for the sake of others? This is what it looks like for us to love the brethren and to learn from God who teaches us to love. So he introduces them, he reviews the topic of the class, reminds them of the teacher who has been so effective in teaching them, but then he tells them about what is it that you hate in class? It's the exam, right? The exam. How does he know? What is his assessment tool 
to know that they really don't need reminded about this. What does he say next? Verse 10, for indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. You are practicing love. Paul, Paul is pointing with certainty to their activity in loving others, working out the lesson that they're being taught by God. That's how Paul knows that they've been taught by God, because they're actually living it. They're practicing what they've been taught. And we get this, don't we? Know we there's a big difference between being taught a lesson and actually learning that lesson, right? That's exactly why teachers have to examine the knowledge and the understanding of their students with tests and exams that we might hate so much. They know what's been taught. They've got their book of lesson plans, right? They can point to the content, but they don't know what's been received and what's been understood, and they want to examine it. They want to assess it. And if everybody does really terribly on the test, then the teacher's going to wonder, okay, maybe they were all equally not listening, or maybe I was not as effective in my education as I thought I was. Indeed, you are practicing it. That's the the measure of how we know we've learned a spiritual lesson is when we're actually living it. We can't just say, yes, I agree with that, and then not go out and live it, right? That's not not how it works in the spiritual life. We, We can't be hearers of the word only. We must be also doers of it. And Paul sees in them here being doers. They are practicing it toward all the brethren, all of those Churches and Christians within their their sphere of knowledge and sphere of influence even. And he describes it even further. All the brethren who are in all Macedonia. This is the region. If if you know your geography, if you see the the Mediterranean there, and there's where Israel is right here, and uh, Egypt is down here. Greece is up here, right? If some of you have been to Greece, there's kind of this part that sticks down into the Mediterranean. Macedonia, at this time in Rome, is at the northern portion of Greece. If you look at it on a map, if you have a map in the back of your Bible of Paul's missionary journeys, you could see that he traveled through Macedonia to cities like Neapolis and Philippi and Amphipolis and Apollonia and Berea. And earlier in the book, when he speaks about Macedonia and Achaia, Achaia was another region, the southern portion of this Greek peninsula that would have had Athens and Corinth and Centria. But they're, they're, exert, they're showing love towards all of these Christian brethren all over their region. And if we were to do a little bit of cross-referencing, you could write down 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Thessalonica really was leading in this regard. <clears throat> they were a commendable example, even to the Corinthians, many miles away. They were a commendable example to all the surrounding churches of their generosity and the care that they showed towards other churches. Paul commends them to another church. He knows that they're practicing it. They're passing their exam. So we can know when we've really learned a spiritual lesson when we're living it out. And what is the lesson? What is the command? That you love one another. So are you passing? Are you doing it? This is, of course, again, more than just affection, although affection isn't nothing. Love for brothers and sisters in Christ includes all of these things that we've been speaking of. You know it in your head. Okay, I know I need to love. But do you live it in your life? That's the test. 
I'll have to save for another time the objectives. <clears throat> he urges them to abound. Doesn't want them to stay put. And then I believe in verses 11 and 12, <clears throat> what he does is he fleshes out a little bit of what it looks like to love others. Love others in, in the community of the church. Your brethren also love outsiders by, by your conduct, by your work ethic. He wants them to be humble. He wants them to be well-ordered. He wants them to work hard, even in the most menial of tasks, and all for the sake of evangelizing the lost, depending on the Lord, not, not being a burden to others as Paul himself was an example in doing. And it's even possible that Paul kind of foresaw something. If you read the letter to the second letter that he writes, he addresses this a little more particularly says you need to work hard we set an example for you this way you need to not loaf off of other people it's not loving i think is the connection he makes but in the time that we have paul has put in their minds that they have a good teacher who's taught them well and they are passing by god's grace they are paul knows that they're really being effective in this vital sign if i can mix my metaphors again it's really there And he's thankful for that, and he urges them to continue in it. Is this evident in your life? If if the doctor was to come in and measure the vital signs of your spiritual life, what would they find? What would they find as far as love for the brother? May the Lord help us. It really is in our sinful nature to withdraw and to be selfish. And, of course, the Lord creates us new, but we have this sin in us not be rid of until we meet the Lord and we need the Lord's help to continue to love others and to put ourselves out there and this isn't something that we can do just in the strength of our own flesh number one it's not a natural thing for a natural person to do but it's also not an easy thing for a spiritual person to do this is a a divine thing that God does in us what is the fruit of the spirit what's the very first one fruit of the spirit is love it's love may the lord help us to walk in the spirit and not fulfill the lusts of the flesh because we do need his help and if you find yourself saying you know what we're talking about you know i don't feel like i can do that praise the lord (laughs) that's the right thing because this isn't something we can do in our own might it ought to cause us to cry out to the lord and say lord help me help me to love forgive me of my selfishness and In God's goodness, as wonderful as that sounds, it really is that wonderful that we get to grow together in this way as we give out for one another and love as we have been loved by God. Let's pray. Father, as we we consider love for our brothers and sisters and love for you, I trust that we have been reminded that it isn't something we can manufacture or kind of stump up on our own. I know I would confess that I have tried, and it's impossible. But we know that this is just an outflow of your goodness and um, a fruit that your Spirit produces within us. And I pray that we would uh, walk in the Spirit, that we would be filled with the Word, that we would keep our eyes on Jesus, who is the one who has loved us greater than any other by laying down his life for us. And Lord, I pray that you would thrill us with the love that we have been shown. I pray that you would bring it to our gaze again, 
our eye of faith to really be amazed at the amazing grace that we've been shown, the amazing love that we, we do not deserve, we cannot comprehend. And then, Lord, I pray that you would work it out through us toward others, that we would be a blessing to others, and that you would build us up in love, because that's your marvelous plan for the church. You are gracious and you're good, and we we praise you this evening. We ask for your help. Help us to walk with you. We pray this in Christ's name.